Good morning. Hello, everyone. Sorry to break up your conversations. I hope you get chatting again afterwards in the cafe. So you're joining us during our series. We are coming towards the end of it, and it's about emotionally healthy church. And I wanted to start this morning by saying thank you to all of you. I just wanted to say thank you for being a brave church because I was at a counselling training day yesterday and it just really reminded me that looking at any of this stuff is not necessarily an easy thing to do. You know, if we're going to consider our emotions, our emotional health, our well-being, if we're wanting to be more like Jesus in this area of our lives, it's actually a really brave thing to do. Because, you know, it would be easier to just come to church and get on with life and pretend everything's fine, put your wee mask on, just get on with it. But life isn't easy. You know, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And things happen in life. We only have to look around, look at, you know, people we know, look in our own lives. Things happen. Life happens and it does impact on us. And for us to lean into God, to lean into community, to share with one another, to allow him into those tough areas of our life is a really brave thing to do. And I just feel proud to be part of a church that is willing to do that. And I just really felt like I wanted to say that this morning to all of you. So last week, um, Paul was speaking about the principle of embracing grief and loss, and he shared that we can experience that in loads of different ways. It's not just um, bereavement. Um, It could be moving house. It could be losing your job, changing your job, a marriage breakup, kids leaving home, friendships that change, or people who let you down. So many things can make us experience grief and loss. And it's really important that we journey that, that we Um, feel that loss and suffering about different events, that we let Jesus into those places and that we let go of the negative effects that can have on us. And I know that for many of us, that is a journey that we are currently on. And another thing that happens as we walk that path is we cultivate a heart of compassion for other people and maybe perhaps others who have experienced a similar kind of loss to ourselves and God can birth something out of our own difficult circumstances where we're able to bless other people and speak to them and share with them. This week, I read something for the first time that I was quite surprised that I'd never heard of before. Um... I was reading, oh, I forgot my book. That's bad news. Is it in my bag? <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Can you look up the page? Page 181. You're not being very helpful. Right. (laughs) Okay. So I was reading this book this week, Emotionally Healthy Church, in preparation. And in this book, he mentioned something that I had not heard of before. And I was, I read it. I read the extract in this book. And then I went online and I read the actual letter. It's a letter that Martin Luther King had written when he was in jail in Alabama. And I was actually blown away by this letter. There's so many things in it, which I won't 
bore you all with all of it. I bored Johnny during the week when he happened to call into the office. He regretted that. Um, but anyway, um, so Martin Luther King had gone to this um, town called Birmingham in Alabama. Um, he was um, with the other black leaders in that town doing um, a, a non-violent protest, um, obviously part of the civil rights movement in America. And um, I just um, was... So what happened was he got put in prison for doing this and some other um, church leaders, white um, leaders, some other faith leaders, a rabbi, wrote a letter to him in, j in jail saying, you should wait, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be coming to this town and doing this protest. And he wrote a letter back to them from jail um, and he said... I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, and this is the bit that got me, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to coloured children. And see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin in her little mental sky. See her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. Martin Luther King knew that what was happening wasn't fair and he knew that it was affecting his people and the next generation that it was clouding their children it was it was just totally distorting them and their what they saw about the world and the goal that he had in writing this letter to those white leaders was really clear he was desperately and passionately trying to get those people to walk in the shoes of an african-american and there's a Native American saying which is to truly understand other human beings we must first walk a mile in their moccasins and essentially what Martin Luther King was trying to teach there was about the incarnation God took on human flesh the creator of the universe limited himself to the confines of history and a human body. And I love how the message puts that in John 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what God did. He became physically incarnate. And he knew that the best way to show himself to human beings was by fully entering into our world physically and emotionally. He took on skin. Now, I have created in our house what some might think is a bad habit with our kids. And that this is that they like to sleep with the light on. And it started off when they were little. Some of them just didn't like it when I used to turn the light off when I was going out. So I just left the light on. 
And sometimes kids just don't like the dark. And I've tried to wean them off it at different times and switch the light off and sneak in halfway through and switch the light off. And there's times that Hope has called me into the room like if she's woken up or even before she goes to sleep. And she's like the ultimate extrovert. She just wants to be with people. And she cries and she says, I don't like being here by myself. I just don't like sleeping in my room by myself. And being the good Christian parent that I am, I say to her, but Hope, you're not by yourself you're never by yourself Jesus is with you God is here with you and sometimes she says but mommy I just want you and she is saying I know that God is with me I know that he's here but I need someone in the room who has skin I need someone I can touch and God knew that we needed that he knew that we just couldn't and manage with just a knowledge of him. We're, people are desperate for skin. People are desperate to be loved. Someone to incarnate with them, if we're wanting to use that word. And today, God still has physical skin. He can still be seen and touched. And that's through his body. That's through the church. We are called by Jesus' name and through his Holy Spirit to be skin for people around us. And what does that look like? How do we live like Jesus? How do we be skin to the people around us? In emotionally healthy churches, people intentionally follow the model of Jesus. The essence of a genuine spiritual life is to love God, ourselves and other people. I've mentioned Henry Nguyen before. He wrote loads of books. One of them was The Wounded Healer. And he talked about before his death, he experienced in his life two different voices. He was really intelligent. He used to speak. He taught at Harvard and Yale, prestigious U.S. universities. He wrote loads of books. And yet this could have overtaken his life because he heard a voice saying, you need to achieve, you need to do well, you need to, to um, speak, you need to do all these um, prestigious things. So that was one voice that he heard in his life. But the other voice that he heard in his life was God's voice telling him he's unconditionally loved. He has nothing to prove. And that voice told him that the goal of ministry is to recognize the Lord's voice, his face and his touch in every person that he met. And yet he felt like it was only in the last 10 years of his life when he resigned from Harvard, he gave up all those prestigious things and he became pastor of large community of mentally handicapped people in Canada. And I just thought about that and I thought, if we were to do that, if we were to recognize God's voice, his face and his touch in every single person we meet, what difference would that make? It's hard, isn't it? Because we've got busy lives. There's so many demands on us. How often do we listen to that first voice and not listen to the second voice? How can we walk in someone else's shoes? How can we be Jesus to others and see him in the people that we meet? And if we believe that's something we're called to do, then that is one of the reasons why it's so important that we look at this whole area of emotional health. Now, the ordered person in me really likes showing you the things that we've all done already. These are the things that we've done so far. We've looked beneath the surface. And I just want to ask you some questions this morning. If we don't know how to look beneath the surface of our lives, how can we share those parts of us that we've never explored? We've looked at breaking the power of the past. 
If we're not aware of our own stories growing up and how they impact on us, how can we explore other people's journeys with them? We've talked about living in brokenness and vulnerability. If we're full of defenses and we can't be vulnerable, how can we expect others to do that as well and share our worlds? We've talked about receiving the gift of limits. If we don't really understand limits and boundaries, if we just go beyond, do everything, do everything even more than what God would ask, we're just going to burn out and get resentful and we're not going to be able to help others. We've talked about embracing grieving and loss. We will find it hard to grieve with people in their pain if we've never grieved our own. And the sixth one is what I'm talking about today. So making incarnation your model for living well. We will be able to love well if we're making progress in the other principles that we've looked at. So incarnation calls us out of our literal physical comfort zones to meet other people where they are. And I really feel that this is something that God, we're just on the tip of the iceberg um, as a church in this. God is going to teach us more about what that actually means and what that actually looks like. So we can have our busy lives, we can rush around, but how do we listen to that voice that Henry Nguyen described? How do we see Jesus and the people we meet at work, at school, at college, at the gate, in the shops, the people who live in our street? And we just need to look at the Gospels. We see Jesus, he spoke to the crowds, yes, and it talks about that, but we see him interacting with individuals, people like Matthew, Nathaniel, a prostitute, Nicodemus, a blind man, the Samaritan woman many others and when the rich young ruler came to him it says Jesus looked at him and loved him he listened he was present he wasn't in a rush he wasn't distracted he took the time with people to explore those stories and I just really want to get practical for a a little moment what does that actually mean Jesus listened what does it actually mean to listen to another person When we're in a conversation, when we're listening to someone else, are we willing to enter into their world? Are we busy thinking about how we're going to reply? What's the next thing we're going to say? Are we judging them in our hearts? Are we correcting them? Are we getting ready to defend ourselves? And I was going to later, I'll put a wee listening test on Facebook on our page and you can see how well you do. You can give yourself a wee test. Are we giving people our full attention? Are we willing to explore with them? Are we going to ask them questions? Say things like, tell me more. Help me understand where you're coming from. And it's hard to do that when you're feeling on edge or you feel like someone's getting at you or you're attacked or angry. But the goal is to set aside the need to defend. So I'm going to give you an example. So say you're leading a life group, right? And someone just comes up to you at the end of it and says, well, I didn't get anything out of grip tonight. Like, what's your first reaction going to be? Like, my first reaction might be I want to, like, hit them a wee slap because I spent ages preparing that life group, cheeky. Or you might want to start defending yourself. Well, you know, it's been a tough week. Or you might want to blame them. Well, you obviously weren't paying much attention. <laughs> you know, our react it is true, isn't it? Our instant reaction is, like, guard up, defense, or attack, or whatever. But are we willing to walk in their shoes? Would we be able to say to them, well... That's interesting. Tell me what made it an unfruitful evening for you. (laughs) 
you may have a different way to say it. But um, when was the last time you felt truly listened to? And I'm sure that all of you now sitting here can think of a time where you tried to talk to someone about something and all they did was like just come back at you. Like they didn't really listen to what you had to say. They started defending themselves. They started having a go at you. Or you can maybe even think of a time where you've done that to someone else. You, you just feel your hackles raising and you go straight for the attack. You're not really listening to what they're trying to tell you. And when you really listen to people, they feel valued and they feel loved. When was the last time someone said to you, see those Christians, they're amazing. They really listen. They are really interested in me. They're curious about my life. That is amazing. And it says in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Will people know our church is a caring church? This is a community who cares because we listen. We take time to involve ourselves in people's worlds and their story and we love one another. So when I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of some examples of people I know who have shown me what incarnation looks like. So incarnation looks like giving um, food to a Polish girl and her little boys, not just handing her a food parcel, but having a cup of tea with her, hearing her story, connecting with her, trying to build relationship with her. I'm going to embarrass Steve now, but incarnation looks like him having to meet with someone twice because he'd arranged to meet them about compassion, about local issues. And because that person has been so busy sharing their heart with him, telling them about their life, they never get around to talking about the thing they've actually met up to talk about. Because Steve really listens to people. He interacts with their story and he gives them time. Incarnation means to feel what it's like to walk in another person's shoes, to be like Jesus, be present and listen to others. But I do want to give a warning or a challenge or something in that. When we really enter someone else's world, we need to hold on to ourselves and not lose ourselves when we enter that person's world. So sometimes we can empathize too much or we hold back. We don't say what we really think because we're too afraid or we begin to lose ourselves in that process. And we need to look at Jesus as our model. He became fully man, but he remained fully God. Incarnation looks like my friend who's come out of a really difficult relationship, a damaging relationship. She's allowed God and his love and mercy and the people around her to bring healing and freedom in her life. And now in her everyday life, just as a mom, God's bringing other people into her path who are struggling with similar things to her. And he uses her to speak truth and love to them. But in that she watches, she holds on to herself, she knows her limits, she knows who she is in God and she makes sure she doesn't take on too much or let go of God's love and truth for her as she gives support to these other people who are coming across her path. So in a way it's like hanging between two worlds. Jesus during his incarnation on earth was fully God, he was in perfect communion with, with the Father but he was human. We know that he faced suffering, he faced death. He, he hung between two worlds, heaven and earth. You know, it would have been easier for Jesus to just stay in heaven with God the Father. 
He, by entering our world, by coming, to be, by being skinned to us, by making himself real to us, he invited sorrow and pain into his life. Read the Gospels. He was misunderstood. He wasn't appreciated. He died a lonely, naked death on the cross, literally hanging between heaven and earth. And you and I might not die on the cross like that, literally. But if we incarnate, if we become Jesus to other people, we will die in other ways. Because it takes time, doesn't it, to enter someone else's world. It costs us energy. It it disrupts our tidy little risk-free world. And I do believe that God wants to show us more as a church what this is like, to call us to more more of this. Are we willing to be disturbed? Are we willing to put ourselves out? Incarnation looks like chatting to the staff in the shop you go into regularly and hearing their heart so they feel comfortable to share their lives and ask you to help them. Incarnation looks like listening to the person in your workplace, sharing your life with them so that when things get tough in their life, they trust you and you're able to ask if you can pray for them in their time of sickness or loss. When we choose to live like this, we're hanging between our world and that of another person. We're called to remain faithful to who we are, but at the same time enter their world. And that brings life. Jesus came. He became incarnate. He brought life to us who choose to follow him. And when we choose to live like him, it's going to bring resurrection life to other people and it's going to change us. We, we need to ask questions. What's it, what's it like to be you? What's it like to walk in your skin? You know, God changes us in that process. He doesn't just change the person we're with. We learn to die to the ugly parts of ourselves. We learn to give ourselves away. It keeps our feet on the ground. It brings healing and transformation to other people and to us. The saying that we've said before, we grow as we go. Incarnation looks like God giving you a heart for your friend at the school gate. And when she has cancer, you pray for her. And you cry because you want that healing so much for her and her kids and her family. But you come away a hundred times more blessed by her faith and trust than any small thing you've been able to give to her. And this is not about the church fixing people. As the Holy Spirit moves in our lives and we learn to love others well, we will see his kingdom come. And it gradually ripples through our church, our lives, and into the hurting world around us. I just wanted to finish with these verses from 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort in salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort.